How often does gas control European electricity prices? And why did Indigenous people in the Peruvian Amazon hold tourists hostage last week? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Becosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hoke, a climate communicator. Make sure to give this a follow and let's jump right into today's news. Hey, podcast listeners. I just want to say thank you so much for continuing to support this podcast and the work I do. I know the uploads have been kind of wonky recently and they might continue to stay kind of a wonky upload schedule, but I hope that you will still come to listen to these episodes all the same. Y'all are the reason why I do this and yeah. (laughs) So for today's episode, we have a lot to cover since it's been a sec since I did a climate recap episode. I'm not going to cover new stuff having to do with COP27 because I'm going to do a separate video for COP27. So stay tuned for that. But there's still definitely plenty to cover, especially since COP27 continues to bring all these different studies coming out of the woodwork. So we're going to talk about a lot of studies that are trying to tell influential people at COP27 things. And we'll actually listen to the studies. I don't know whether or not our politicians or corporate execs will, but you know, at least we'll know what they should be doing. So let's start by talking about what's at risk. UNESCO reports that major glaciers around the world will for sure melt by 2050, regardless of how mitigation efforts go. UNESCO tracks some 18,600 glaciers across 50 World Heritage Sites, representing about 10% of the world's glaciers. So this is not the full picture, but based on the thousands it tracks, UNESCO says a third of these glaciers will melt by 2050. This includes some of the world's most famous glaciers, like at Yosemite National Park in California, Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming and Montana, Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, and Dolomitis in Italy. UNESCO says keeping warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius will save the other two-thirds of the glaciers. But if warming trends continue the way they are now, half of the heritage site glaciers could melt by 2070. We are currently on track to warm the planet by 2.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Glaciers provide drinking water for billions of people around the world, so their melting will cause increased water scarcity in addition to more flood risk and sea level rise. Meanwhile, a new Deloitte study found that a quarter of the world's workforce is highly vulnerable to climate extremes and haphazardly managed or passive low carbon economic transitions. I'm talking about jobs being impacted by heat stress, changes in crop yields, stress on the tourism economy, loss of emissions intensive jobs, and the list goes on. On the flip side of that coin though, well-planned economic growth of the green collar workforce or an active transition could result in a net increase in employment by 300 million by 2050 and benefits some of that same at-risk workers I just mentioned. The choice seems pretty obvious to me, which we should do. Now let's go over to more of the studies that talk about how we're not decarbonizing fast enough. First off, 20 researchers from Melbourne Climate Futures released a land gap report, which shows that countries would need to fill an area the size of all the world's croplands with trees to fit their net zero carbon goals. This is because countries are significantly over-relying on massive tree planting and other land-based carbon sink projects to suck up their surplus of carbon emissions. Countries rather say they will plant more trees than reduce 
reduce their fossil fuel use or conserve old growth forests. The study also highlights the reality that planting more trees doesn't equate to protecting the environment. In fact, planting trees on top of valuable carbon sinks like grasslands and wetlands would do more harm than good. Relying on tree planting operations will have negative impacts on ecosystems, indigenous communities, food security, and human rights. Indigenous groups have been warning about this for years because these operations give countries an excuse to remove people from their native land in the name of climate mitigation. Tree planting operations usually are in the form of young tree monoculture, which won't suck up as much carbon as established forests and are more vulnerable to wildfires and disease. The ability to calculate how much carbon tree planting operations actually take up is tedious and limited too, especially when compared to the impact of reducing fossil fuels. It's a little more obvious in that case. The report recommends countries make deep cuts in emissions from industrial agriculture, deforestation, and fossil fuels instead of relying on unavailable land for carbon offsets. One of the report's authors said, quote, we should really be seeing reductions and removals as two different things. Some more effective emissions reduction measures the report recommends include safeguarding indigenous rights to protect land and prioritizing conservation. Speaking of conservation, though, a new study published in the journal Science Advances found that sustaining protected areas provides a noticeable cooling effect on a region and climate change refugia for biodiversity. The cooling impact of maintaining natural or semi-natural spaces is the most beneficial in reducing daily maximum temperatures in the tropics and reducing the daily and seasonal temperature ranges in higher latitudes. Specifically, protecting forests is very beneficial for reducing warming closer to the poles. Areas with protected forests see 20% less warming than their unprotected surroundings, according to the study. That's pretty significant. But back now to the not-so-great studies, 2021 saw a 16% surge in fossil fuel subsidies among countries, according to a new Bloomberg NEF analysis. That's before Russia invaded Ukraine, y'all. The analysts cautioned this percentage is a conservative estimate, too. Continuing these fossil fuel subsidies is reckless for many reasons. Subsidies distort prices, encourage potentially wasteful use and production, and pour capital into emissions-intensive infrastructure. And while it can be argued that consumer-based subsidies help vulnerable people gain access to cheaper energy, the study found that the majority of subsidies disproportionately help wealthier consumers. Imagine if this money was used to spur clean energy development or increase energy efficiency. We would be in a totally different place than we are now. And okay, corporations, now we're looking at you. Three new studies recently dropped all at the same time saying basically the same thing. Corporations are not going to meet their net zero targets at this rate if they even have one in the first place. The information tech company Accenture found that only one third of the world's largest 2000 companies have a climate target, which is actually 7% higher than last year. 93% of companies with targets are expected to miss their targets unless they accelerate their efforts now. They would need to at least double the pace of their emissions cuts by 2030 to get on track. Some of the largest hurdles companies face to reach their goals are inflation, supply chain bottlenecks, and worker shortages. Meanwhile, the American manufacturing consultant company Bain & Co. released a report finding that a third of companies that submitted decarbonization goals to the climate disclosure project missed their 2021 emissions goals. And a recent MCSI analysis stated only a third of listed companies have aligned themselves with keeping warming well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. 
At this rate, all of the listed companies combined would bring warming to about 2.9 degrees Celsius. The one silver lining in these studies brings me back to the Accenture analysis. It shows that we can't fully discount companies' climate pledges as greenwashing because even though companies are mostly missing their goals that they've set, companies with climate pledges are more likely to do the decarbonization work than those that have no pledge at all. So even though they both suck, the ones without pledges suck worse. 83% of the companies they looked at with climate pledges announced plans to up their goals this year. However, most are still not prioritizing reducing scope three emissions, which are indirect emissions made from the supply chain or through the product's use. They usually represent the highest percentage of a company's emissions, and they require more data collection and analysis work to track, which is why most companies really haven't done that. That brings us to the climate victories. 12 food giants, including Unilever, PepsiCo, McDonald's, and Mars, have committed to work together to support regenerative agriculture in an effort to get to net zero emissions by 2050. The food system accounts for a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, and it's mainly run by corporations like these. Prince Charles invited big ag execs to sign the Agribusiness Task Force ahead of COP27, which is taking place in Egypt starting today. It's part of the former Prince of Wales Sustainability Markets Initiative, which he launched back in the World Economic Forum in 2020. SMI works to build a coordinated global effort to enable the private sector to accelerate the transition into a sustainable future. SMI released a study finding that only 15% of the world's croplands use regenerative agricultural practices. That is the agricultural practice that promotes the conservation and rehabilitation of land after hundreds of years of industrial practices. It focuses is on regenerating the topsoil, increasing biodiversity, coexisting and improving the water cycle, etc. SMI argues that regenerative agriculture needs to scale up by 40% by 2030 to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions coming from this sector. But switching agricultural practices means spending thousands of dollars on new equipment and learning new practices, which is a large risk for farmers. By joining the agribusiness task force, these giant corporations are agreeing to work together to agree to common metrics for environmental outcomes, build farmers' income from environmental outcomes such as carbon reduction and removal, create mechanisms to share the cost of transition with farmers, ensure government policy enables and rewards farmers for transition, and develop new sourcing models to spread the cost of the transition. The companies SMI and The Prince invited weren't random too. They are specifically starting with the focus in U.S. wheat, UK, potatoes, and Indian Batsmani rice supply chains from which to identify learnings transferable to other crops and geographies. This actually isn't the first regenerative agricultural commitment PepsiCo has made. It committed to converting its 7 million acres of agricultural land to regenerative practices by 2030. Most of that land grows potatoes, corn, oats, and oranges. It's got about 5% of the way there so far, so that's a bit of a ways to go. And that's basically all we know for now about this new agreement. My main concern is just how vague the task force plan is. So it'll be interesting to see what regenerative agricultural metrics get proposed. In clean energy use, UK wind farms generated a record amount of electricity on Wednesday. Strong winds helped this form of clean energy produce more than 20 gigawatts that day, breaking the previous record set a week prior. With a massive North Sea offshore wind farm completed earlier this year, this record will likely be broken again soon. The UK government wants to get 50 gigawatts of offshore wind up and running by 2030. 
I want to highlight a cool new car driving into the European market next year. The German company Sono Motors created a unique SUV that has already received more than $22,200 refundable deposits from eager customers and more than 22,000 orders from fleet customers. The $34,000 or 29,900 pound Sion contains 456 polymer scratch resistant dent proof solar panels molded into its sleek black frame to turn the sun's rays into energy for its 54 kilowatt hour lithium ion phosphate battery. These solar panels can turn the car's 190 mile battery life into 240 to 340 mile range depending on how much sun it gets. That means that the sun can account for about a third of the average driver's yearly average mileage, but it depends on how sunny the area is and even how sunny your parking spot is. But if the owner only needs to do small commutes and it lives in a sunny place, they could potentially never need to charge their car again. And even without the solar panels, the battery can charge in a half an hour using a fast charger or in a few hours using a level two charger. And again, it's only 29,900 pounds. They got this price by outsourcing production to the Finnish manufacturing company, Valmet Automotive, selling the car directly rather than through third parties and offering no other color options or additional features. Sions can be pre-ordered in the EU to be delivered in the second half of 2023. Sonos is looking at the the American market possibility now too. So that's exciting. The future is now folks. Other companies like California company Aptera and Dutch company Lightyear are working on developing solar powered EVs too. And now for the climate fails. Remember, don't get despondent, get mad. I briefly talked about fossil fuel companies continuous record profits, but let's simmer in them for a sec. Saudi Aramco, the most profitable oil company in the world, just saw its profits surge by 34% in the third quarter to $42 billion or 37 billion pounds. It was higher than analysts expected, though they did expect the oil giant to beat its previous record made in the second quarter. These profits were driven by a combination of increased sale volume and higher crude oil prices. BP also boasted a stronger than expected profit margin from this quarter, bringing in $8.2 billion or 7.2 billion pounds. This time last year, they were making a mere $3.3 billion. Talk about a war profit. Shell reported $9.45 billion or 8.3 billion pounds in earnings, which was its second highest profit on record after the second quarter earnings of $11.5 billion or over 10 billion pounds. Total Energies reported $9.9 billion or 8.7 billion pounds in pure profit that same day. For both Shell and Total Energies, that's twice as much as they were making last year. What's crazy is how much power fossil fuel companies have to keep the energy prices high in Europe, even though the demand for gas has gone down with the rise for cheaper renewable energy. Two studies published by University College London this September determined that fossil fuels are the main driver of electricity prices across Europe. They dictate the price 66% of the time on average in the EU, UK, and Norway, despite fossil fuel companies only accounting for 37% of that group's average electricity generation. This fluctuates quite a bit though. 
Germany sees 91% of its electricity prices dictated by fossil fuels, mainly coal, despite renewables accounting for almost half of its energy supply. France only sees fossil fuels dictate its electricity price about 7% of the time because it's a nuclear-run country. In the case of the UK, gas provides under half of the total electricity, yet it sets the cost 84% of the time. That's just wild. The study's lead said, quote, if we actually paid the average price of what our electricity now costs to produce, our bills would be substantially cheaper. This is because fossil fuels are still needed to handle wind and solar energy fluctuations. Quote, while renewables are providing more and more electricity, we still need natural gas to meet the demand. The most expensive natural gas producers are still needed to cope with fluctuations in renewable energy production, so they are setting what's called the marginal cost at the edge of what's needed. Because natural gas generation is expensive, those producers charge the highest prices, which means that other producers are able to charge similar prices. So they're all working together. Lovely. LCU is working with Aldergate Group and the Institute for New Economic Thinking to come up with proposals for economic reform, energy market decarbonization, and electricity price facilitation. These two studies are the first things to come out of this effort, and they will be part of two major reports that will come out later this month and in May 2023. The summary of the two studies will be available in my source list below if you are interested in learning more about this topic. Liquefied natural gas, or LNG, imports increased by 65% in the first nine months of this year compared to 2021 as countries work to fill their supplies and move away from Russian gas. The Financial Times reported that $2 billion worth of gas is sitting off of Europe's coast right now in 30-plus ships, waiting for prices to go up as the weather gets colder so they can rake in the dough. The reporter got this information from Vortexa shipping data. LNG of course, is problematic because it's a fossil fuel itself, mainly made of methane, which is 84 times better at trapping in heat than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. But it's also a very energy intensive thing to make and store, according to a new report by the consulting firm Rystead Energy. The fossil gas must be cooled down to negative 160 degrees Celsius to become liquid, which is preferred because it's easier to send in a denser supply that way. LNG imports are the main way European countries countries are coping with Russia shutting off its gas supply. But that means that emissions associated with transporting and storing the gas will go up. The authors say relying on LNG like this is short-term thinking, and this increased carbon intensity is just another incentive to prioritize deploying clean energy and energy efficiency measures. We're going to finish off this episode with a messy situation that semi-resolved itself in Peru over the past few days. Indigenous people in the Peruvian Amazon held 150 international and Peruvian tourists hostage to protest the government's inaction on cleaning up a large oil spill that happened back in September. 2,500 tons of crude oil flowed into the Cananico River from a pipeline owned by the state-owned oil company Petro Peru. The indigenous community said this was just the latest of 46 oil spills that have destroyed many parts of the Peruvian Amazon and resulted in the death of two children and a woman. International tourists that were captured came from America, the UK, Spain, France, and Switzerland. Some hostages were held there for up to eight days, and among those tourists attained were elderly people, a pregnant woman, and a woman 
one month old. No one was harmed though. At least one hostage used social media to ask people to spread the indigenous community's message so she could be released sooner. The hostages were released on Saturday, I believe, but I'm not sure if the community will get the help that it was asking for through this hostage situation. And that was your climate recap for the day. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckensphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. And consider joining my Discord server. While I can't guarantee that I will use it too often, it will allow for a space where you can send me and other Beckensphereans resources and chat about various climate topics. The link for that will be in the description box below. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.